John's Gospel, chapter 10. And our other scripture reading will be Psalm 82. So if you would turn to Psalm 82 and John chapter 10. And our first scripture reading will be Psalm 82. If asked um, to list some of the most popular or well-known psalms, Psalm 82 might not jump to mind. It's a short one. It's only eight verses. It's not a psalm of David. Instead, as it says there in the title, it's, it's a psalm of Asaph. And nevertheless, it is part of God's word. And so we will read this together and then we will read in John's Gospel, chapter 10. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And now John's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, and I'll read through verse 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who sent the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, 
because I said, I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that Jesus has said or John has said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the reading of God's word. We say, thanks be to God. So today, just to review a little bit of where we are in John's uh, gospel, Jesus, all through John's gospel, has been communicating over and over, giving various signs and demonstrations that he indeed is the Messiah, that he indeed is the anointed one of the Lord, that he is the Christ. And he is, we've seen kind of as we've journeyed through John's gospel these many months, we now come to uh, the last public demonstration and last public declaration of of who he is that culminates right here in these moments Um, the rest of john's gospel we in chapter 11 if we look ahead a little bit we have jesus uh, in bethany with uh, mary and martha and the resurrection of of lazarus he stays in bethany there and then in uh, chapter 12 into 13 is Jesus's triumphal entry back into Jerusalem. And so that it's several chapters there and deal with him privately talking with his disciples. And then we have Jesus in chapter 19, uh, 18 and 19, arrested, um, delivered up to be crucified, and then the resurrection on chapter 20. So From John's gospel's perspective, this is the last kind of demonstration, his last declaration of who who he is. And this is the second time where the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, were attempting to stone him. Remember we saw this in John chapter 8, the end of John chapter 8, when Jesus spoke of Abraham seeing his day and he was really glad about it and the Jews were like, You're not yet even 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham mocking him. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And he doesn't say I was or anything like that. He's clearly using the term uh, for the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And they caught on what he was saying. We talked about this several weeks ago. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went away into the temple. Why did they do that? Because they understood what Jesus was saying. He was claiming that he is Yahweh. He is the Lord. And here, again, we have another example of this declaration, which we saw in verse uh, 28, 29, and 30. He's the one who was able to give eternal life to his people through faith in him. He says that my father was given this flock to him is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand nobody can snatch you out of jesus's hand nobody can snatch you out of the father's hand and he says these words i and the father are one and that's why they seek to stone him again for blasphemy 
But there's something in this passage that's very interesting. Not only is Jesus revealing who he is, also in this passage, in these verses, 31 through 36 specifically, we also have Jesus revealing his perspective on the scriptures. In these verses, in the middle of this conversation with the Jewish authorities, we have Jesus' doctrine of scripture. What did Jesus think about the Bible? You ever thought about that? I mean, Jesus is a character in the Bible. He's, the, he's a feature in the Bible. He's actually the subject of the entire Bible. But have you ever thought, what does Jesus think? I mean, we know what Jesus thinks about heaven, hell, uh, sin, mankind. We've gotten a picture of all of that. Have you thought, what does Jesus think about the scriptures? Here is one of a couple of passages in the New Testament where Jesus reveals something very clearly about the scriptures. So that's what I want us to look at today. They're seeking to arrest Jesus. They want to arrest him and seize him and then stone him, put him to death for blasphemy. And so Jesus responds to this time. Last time in John chapter 8, when they wanted to stone him, Jesus kind of slipped away. This time, Jesus stops and he goes, okay, you're attempting to stone me. Why? He goes, was it because of a good work that I have done? What, I've shown you many good works from the Father, he says. From which of these good works are you going to stone me? And they lay out their, uh, their case, right, in verse 33. The Jews answered him, and it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now here, this is in reference to what he had just said in verse 30. I and the Father are one. And also in the back of their minds has to be the incident many, many months ago when he had said, uh, Abraham saw, before Abraham was, I am. So they've gotten enough evidence here that they say Jesus is claiming equality with God here, which in their mind is blasphemy. And notice that he says, I and the Father are one, and they say, because you, a man, make yourself God. To which Jesus gives a very interesting rebuttal in verses 34 through 36. Now, first, I want you to notice, and because and now he's debating with the religious leaders here, and he is using what they're experts on, which is the scriptures. And so now he does this very interesting thing here. Now, first, before we get into it, I want you to observe the terms that Jesus uses for the Bible. Here, and the Bible here is the Jewish scriptures, okay? Notice verse 34, he says to them, what's written in your law. Now, the, the your here doesn't mean like he's distancing himself from the law. It's more of kind of an accusation. You're the authorities in the law. So it's kind of like to say your law. It's not to say it's not his law. He's saying your law is that this is the thing that you're specialists in. Okay. Notice written in your law. Verse 35, he calls it the word of God. And then also in verse 35, you hear the, see the word scripture. Do you see all three of those terms there? Law, word of God, scripture. The law, um, the Greek word here is namas, but it's the Hebrew term for Torah, which is the, uh, usually in reference to the first five books of Moses, but sometimes on occasion it's kind of extended out to refer to the three parts of the uh, the Hebrew Bible, which was the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So sometimes they separate them out. Remember Dave last week was speaking about 
Jesus, uh, uh, that all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of me. Uh, those were all the three different parts of the scriptures, the Psalms being the biggest book of the writings. Uh, then you have the prophets and then you have the law or Torah. So sometimes it's used for just one. Sometimes it's used for kind of the whole thing. And so Jesus says, well, what does it say in your law? And we know he's using it here for the whole thing in a moment because he says, does not it say in your law? And then he quotes something from the Psalms. Okay, so here it's the larger term for law. So law, second scripture, this is uh, the word for writings. So God's word is actually been inscripturated. It's been written down. And then. It is, as he said, the word of God. Okay, so no more on these in a moment. But I wanted you to observe those terms there. Now I want you to look at Jesus' argument. Look at the argument that he's making here. It's a, a classic lesser to a greater argument. Okay, now what does that mean? The lesser to the greater. Well, he's saying, well, if this is something true in this case, which is, seems to be like a smaller case, then wouldn't it be true for a larger a larger case. Let me give an example, like the healing of the paralytic whose friends drop him down on the floor. And Jesus says, and he looks and he sees their faith. And he says, your son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious authorities were very troubled by him. Say, wait a second. Who, who has the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And Jesus goes, um, he, he says, he challenges their, their disbelief on his ability or his the authority that he has to forgive sins and he was using at this point a, a lesser to a greater argument so the greater thing what's well, a version of it the greater thing would be to be to uh, from God's perspective would be to be forgiven for sins but the easy from a human perspective the easy thing would be to say your sins are forgiven as opposed to performing a miracle and causing him to stand up and walk at that time, which is why Jesus says, which is the easier thing to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to say you take up your mat and walk? The implication is it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, even with all the trouble that it would cause you. He goes, but nevertheless, to show you that I have the authority to say your sins are forgiven, he turns to the man and says, take up your mat and walk. Do you see how that's an argument from the, the, the lesser to the greater, which is easier to say it, or to actually tell the man to say your sins are forgiven or tell the man to walk. But to show you that I can do the authority, then I'm going to do this other one. That's a very similar type of thing that Jesus is arguing here. So he says to them, Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said you are, I, I am the son of God. Okay, so Jesus, the first thing he wants to do is say, you're, you have issue with me claiming that I and the father are one and you're saying that I am making myself God. Uh, and then Jesus goes, but because I, a man, am making myself God. Jesus goes, are you really troubled and worried over the fact that if I did say that I am God, that that in some way violates your scripture? 
And Jesus kind of does a little technicality. He's kind of arguing a technicality here. Does not the, the scripture say of human persons that I am God? That passage that he quotes is the other passage that we read from today, which is Psalm 82. So now turn back to Psalm 82. It's a, it's a very interesting psalm. It's a psalm of Asaph. And, and in my reading of it, I, I really just read it. I didn't say quotes or punctuation. I didn't read anything like that. Let me kind of give you a little breakdown of what's happening here. He's in a divine courtroom setting. That's verse 1. This is Asaph speaking. God has taken his place in the divine council. Now, what is this divine council? This is the big debate that scholars have over this passage. Who, who is it that he's referring to here? Is it angels, the, the angelic host of heaven that he's ha having in this council? Uh, who is it that he's referring to here? There's some who say that this is an angelic heavenly uh, host room here. Um, but there's others who say, I myself included, that he's, that he's referring to human persons, human judges, human princes, human kings on earth. So the idea was in the ancient world and even, even uh, up until very recently, and as a matter of fact, even currently in some countries, the kings or princes or rulers over a, a country are mediators for God. They're like small g God. Um, some of you may, in, in your conversations with Dave when he was visiting here last week, the, the king of Thailand is, is referenced almost at deity status. This is even true like in the, the Church of, of England with the coronation of the queen, which was done in private. Um, that there's, if you go and read like what's happening when she's being coronated, there's a sense of this divine the divine rights of, of kings or queens, that they're God's representatives on earth. And that was true in the ancient world at that time, too. So the view here is that he's referring to actually human rulers and not just to angels and angelic beings, which makes sense for the context because he goes to now criticize them in verses uh, two through four for what they have failed to do. And all of those things are uh, failures of the task of earthly or human rulers. Notice this in verse 2 and 3 and 4. Because now this is the Lord speaking. Asaph was writing in verse 1. He's giving you the setting. This is the divine council in the midst of the gods, lower G. He holds judgment. And then now here's the word that God is saying to these gods of verse 1. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Okay, this is... This is, they're violating one of the principles which earthly rulers are supposed to abide by. They're to enforce justice. It's talking in a human plane here. Verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. That's not the role or responsibility of angelic beings. That's the role and responsibility of earthly kings and princes and rulers. Verse 4, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So Psalm 82, his Asaph writing a, 
a song of praise in Israel's prayer book of praise to God that he's calling together his divine counsel and he's now giving judgment particularly on earthly rulers for their failure to do and to rule according to justice under him. Asaph now writes his comment here in verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Okay, this is not a heavenly courtroom. This is a judgment on earthly rulers. And it's saying when they have going against what God has provided, both in his, whether this is in the, the people of Israel, the kings over Israel's time, or whether this is the, the foreign Gentile rulers like the, the Assyrians or the Babylonians, it could be both. It's not really clear whether who it's limited to. Uh, but in all cases, they are to operate according to God's natural revealed law of justice and the specific revealed law that he has given to his people of Israel and that the rulers are to abide by that and they're judged by that. Which has created this problem and Asaph is saying the reason we got to this problem is that they neither they don't have knowledge or understanding. That is knowledge of God or understanding of God. They ended up ruling their own way, which is not according to God's light, but according to darkness. And then what's the result? What's the result when you have societies that have earthly rulers who are ruling tyrannically and unjustly that instead of rewarding the good and punishing the evil, they flip-flop it and punish those who do good and reward the evil. What happens? How would you describe it? Doesn't it feel like the entire earth is kind of shaking underneath your feet when that happens in a society? That's what Asaph says. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So now it goes back to what God says in verse 6. I have said... By the way, I'm coming back to Jesus. <laughs> You're like, wait, we're in the psalm for a while. Uh, we're coming back to Jesus, especially here in verse 6, because this is the verse Jesus quotes. Verse 6, I said, and now this is God saying to those uh, unjust rulers, you are gods. You are sons of the Most High, all of you. Okay, this is, in a way, this is affirming the status of of earthly rulers being put in place by God. Now, doesn't, doesn't the New Testament tell us that? Romans 13 tells us that the rulers and those who are in authority over men are servants of God. They're to do his will. They're to reward the good. They're to be a threat to those who do evil. They're not, they should not be a threat to those who do good. They are the ones who enforce justice on the world. They're the ones who have the power of the sword for punishment. For the wicked and the evildoer. And so he's acknowledging here their divine status. And he's using this, if we could kind of say this, with the small g gods. I said, you are God, sons of the most high, all of you. And this is to heighten the exaggeration of their role and now their subsequent fall. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, we shouldn't take that to, to mean like that they're not like men or they're not like you know any prince that they have some sort of special status i think it's more like no actually what's going to happen uh to you is you're going to die like the men that you are because you fail to live and to rule justly as i command 
And then Asaph ends this psalm, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. Which Jesus himself actually does do. So this is God's verdict or his indictment on them. If I could put it this way, this is how I kind of wrote it this week. Don't think your exalted status as privileged elites, as rulers over men, makes you exempt from the judgment of God. You are going to die like regular men because essentially you are regular men or women. If you rule unjustly apart from my law, it's revealed, not just specially, but in nature. And you act as a law unto yourself. That's the meaning of the Greek word autonomous, an autonomous ruler. No, there is no such thing. That's the case you can expect to be thrown down like any other God. The Lord God is the sovereign ruler over all rulers. All earthly rulers must rule under his authority. And eventually he will take his place and remove all other earthly rulers. And Jesus Christ, by his virtue of his life and his death and his resurrection as an ascension to the right hand of the Father, he has been and will be it has been crowned the king of kings and lord of lords. And then I love it in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, what's pictured is the vanquishing of all of them. He's the only one left. He's the victor. I love this. Revelation 19. You, don't, you can turn there if you want, but Revelation 19, verses 11 and 18. Then I saw heaven opened up. This is John, the same author of this gospel here, who sees this and who writes this. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on them that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword uh, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I, I can't help but think when reading this in uh, Revelation 19 that this is kind of a picture of what maybe Asaph saw. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing by the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Notice all the ranks he lists there. I just love that, that, that the, the robe of Jesus Christ, the conquering king, is actually dipped in the blood of the unrighteous. It should be a terrifying picture. And it's a picture when you think about Revelation chapter 7, what a contrast that is about the saints who put their faith in Jesus Christ, their robes are actually washed white by his blood. 
And Rachel reminded me of this last week, this quote I said, and I go, I have a vague recollection of saying this in the Revelation series. And she goes, oh, I remember. And she says, you can have your filthy robes washed white in the blood of the lamb, or he will have his robes splattered in yours. That's the choice. So this is what I think Asaph sees here. But it's interesting. In this psalm, you have this word from God. It's a quote. It's saying to them, you are gods. And it's this that Jesus grasps a hold of. It's just the one word. One word. And this, this is what Jesus grasps, grasps a hold of. It all hinges on this one word. So Jesus' basic argument is this. You're objecting, religious rulers, uh, to claiming that I am one with the Father. He says, you revere the Old Testament as the word of God, as scripture. Yet the Old Testament scriptures call human rulers gods. So you're objecting to my reference to being uh, to being the one true son of the one true God by saying that because the word of God uh, that you revere uh, would forbid that. He goes, but the word of God that you revere actually has God calling other human persons gods. See, this little, it's kind of a little sneaky, maybe of Jesus to do this. But if scripture calls humans gods in those particular instances, then why can you complain that I call myself the son of God? Argument from lesser to greater. Now notice what else Jesus says is part of that argument. In verse 35. And it's just a passing comment. It's just a passing comment. It, it's part of his argument, but it's more of... A, it's not something he's trying to prove. It's actually a premise that both he and they would agree to and recognize. So he says, you know, doesn't it say in your law that I said you are gods? If he called them, human rulers, gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. That's the second premise. One that they would agree with. The scripture cannot be broken. He's not convincing them that the scripture cannot be broken. That's a point of agreement. That's a premise that they both share in this argument. The scripture cannot be broken. It figures into what is meant there. Here, just in that passing comment, you have Jesus saying something really profound about his belief, his doctrine of the scripture. And that is all of the scriptures, all of the scriptures, are one cohesive unit. There's a unity. There's a one unity of all the scriptures. Now, you might ask, if you know a little bit about the Bible, how is that possible? You have writings here that span 1,400 years, written in three different languages, dozens of authors, human authors, a lot of whom didn't know one another, comes from many different regions of the world, all the way from Rome or maybe even possibly as far as Spain, all the way over to what would be modern-day Iran. Covering that whole span, written over 1,400 years, 
Nevertheless, what, how can all of that be considered one cohesive thing? How can it all be unbroken, an unbroken document? Well, Jesus says, it cannot be broken because there's just one author. One, one author, maybe dozens of multiple of human authors written over different periods of times, but the one eternal God is the author of the scripture. That's why there's one cohesive, unified message. It tells one story, the prediction of the coming Messiah and his coming. And now what happens as a result? From a human authorship perspective, uh, it's a reasonable question. How can there be one, one unity, one cohesiveness? How is that even possible? But when you factor in the divine authorship of Scripture, it makes sense. Let me read to you from um, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, paragraph 1. That gets a little behind here what Jesus said is about this scriptures uh, cannot be broken. The holy scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, power of, and power of God that people are left without excuse He's talking about general revelation, God's general revelation through creation. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. You don't learn about, um, you don't learn about your sin and need of a redeemer unless that is revealed by God specially. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church to preserve and propagate the truth better, to establish and comfort the, uh, the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and the world. Okay? In order to do all of that, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. We have a book. We have a book. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because, because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. In the next paragraph, it begins with the Holy Scriptures or the word of God written. Remember the three words that Jesus referenced just in, those, in part of his argument? The Holy Scriptures, the Word of God written, consists of all of the books of the Old and New Testaments. And that I, from, at that point, I will stop reading. So what's the lesson that we learn here in this debate? Jesus' final little public debate with the Jewish leaders at this time in John's Gospel before he goes to his work on the cross. What do we learn? We learn Jesus' view of Scripture. And may we share Jesus' high view of the scripture. May we share Jesus' high regard for the scriptures. If anyone should have a high view of scripture like Jesus does, it should be his followers. I, and I would say, don't you, 
dare entertain any view of the scriptures that's lower than what Jesus would have. Don't you dare entertain a view of scripture that is lower than what Jesus himself has. There are many followers of, of Christ in the church today um, who actually do have a lower reverence for scripture than Jesus himself did. And in some circles today, and in, in, it might be in the deconstruction circles, um, if, if, if they're not in the deconstruction circles, they will be. But there's some who claim to be following Jesus today, but then use their following of Jesus as justification for minimizing other parts of the scripture. I think this manifests itself in many different ways, but the two ways that I can think of most commonly are those who would make a really sharp distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is really where the action is at. The Old Testament is a God of like judgment and legalism and those sorts of things, but the New Testament is a God of love and Jesus is a God of love, that sort of thing. No, it could not be farther from the truth. Jesus affirmed all of what the Old Testament taught and all that it was pointing to and all that it uh, seeks to fulfill because he himself is that. So be cautious of those Christians who would make a sharp distinction between Old Testament and New Testament. Or, here's another one, even different parts of the New Testament. Probably what's most uh, common I see, the most common way I see this today are those who would seek to pit Jesus against Paul or Jesus against anybody else. You've probably seen this. Maybe even it's debates about the sexual revolution and those sorts of things. And somebody might quote, well, but the scripture says this and might quote something from Romans or 1 Corinthians or something like that. Oh, well, that's Paul. That's not Jesus. Have you heard this? Have you heard this? Okay. That would be an example, again, of entertaining an idea, entertaining a view of a scripture that would be lower than Jesus' view of scripture. Rightly handling the word, you should never be pitting scripture against scripture. Now, should we understand scripture? Should we recognize that, that scripture is, a, is a, a progressive revelation, that he's revealed himself in history? You know, long ago at many times and in many ways. Yes, do we need to read a passage of, of Scripture according to its context and where it fits in the, the story of redemption? Absolutely. Do we, we don't want to attempt to flatten everything out. and just We need to understand the Scripture as it was written and then see to what it works toward or fulfills or what uh, Scripture is referencing backward as, as fulfilling. Of course we need to do that, but we need to recognize every single bit of it even down to the word, one word is all given by God. Let me read to you a quote from um, the manly Mr. Ryle. Um, this is J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, uh, a century or more ago. Uh, and, and I have it on the slide here, so I'll try to... Um, I've got a little bit I'll, I'll read of this before you see the part on the slide. I thought it was worth citing this in full. He says, we should observe in these verses the high honor that Christ puts on the Holy Scriptures, referring to this passage in John chapter 10. 
we find him using a text out of the Psalms as an argument against his enemies in which the whole point lies in the single word gods. And then having quoted the text, he lays down the great principle, the scripture cannot be broken. It is though he had said, wherever the scripture speaks plainly on a subject, there can be no more question about it. The cause is settled and decided. Every jot and tittle of scripture is true and must be received as conclusive. He goes on and he says, says this. The principle here laid down by our Lord is one of vast importance. Let us grasp it firmly and never let it go. Let us maintain boldly the complete inspiration of every word of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures. Let us believe that not only every book of the Bible, but every chapter, and not only every chapter, but every verse, and not only every verse, but every word was originally given by inspiration of God. Inspiration, we must never shrink from asserting, extends not only to the thoughts and ideas of scriptures, of scripture, but to the least words. The principle before us, no doubt, is rudely assaulted in the present day. Let no Christian's heart fail because of these assaults. Let us stand our ground manfully and defend the principle of plenary inspiration as we would the pupil of our eye. There are difficulties in Scripture. We need not shrink from conceding. Things hard to explain, hard to reconcile, and hard to understand. But in almost all these difficulties, the fault we may justly suspect is not so much in the Scripture as in our own weak minds. In all cases, may we be consent to wait for more light and to believe that all shall be made clear at last. One thing we may pray, we may rest assured is very certain. If the difficulties of plenary inspiration are to be numbered by thousands, the difficulties of any other view of inspiration are to be numbered by tens of thousands. I think this, that's a great quote there. You know, what, Whoa, you mean every single word is inspired by God? Yes, but doesn't that create a lot of difficulties? He's like, you have far more difficulties if you don't hold to that. The wisest course is to walk the old path, the path of faith and humility, and say, I cannot give up a single word of my Bible. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The scripture cannot be broken. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, especially in our day, he speaks of it in his day that it's being challenged. And I'm like, well, not, there's nothing new under the sun. Same true to today. And may we likewise say, I'm not going to give up a single word of the scriptures that are written in my Bible. All of it is given by God and it cannot be broken. Can we say with Jesus and the scripture cannot be broken? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for your word and oh, the power that, that lies within when we read and study your word. God, I would pray that you would stir us all to make an effort to read it privately in our homes, that you would 
stir within us a greater desire to read it with our families. Father, I pray that you would stir within us a greater eagerness that when we gather as your people to hear your word proclaimed, that we come eager to hear, as Paul says, the words of God, not not the words of men, but these are the words of God. So give us that desire and hunger after your word to hear it, to, to understand it, to come to know it, to trust it, and to believe it, and to follow it. We pray that you would help us to that end so that we could follow faithfully after Jesus Christ and bring glory to you. May you do so by the power of your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And it is in the name of Christ that all God's people said, Amen. 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 Friends, let's stand for our closing benediction. Uh, our commissioning in our benediction here. So it'll be two slides here. I love this from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3. On the word dwelling richly in us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We say, amen. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord whose divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Thank you.